receive God's word by praying for him to soften, to illuminate, to, to transform them through the preaching and the hearing and the doing of his holy word. Lord, this moment is sacred because in it we are positioning ourselves at the foot of your throne to bow to your voice. This is not a natural thing taking place. It's miraculous. God speaks light and life into the hearts of his children from the preaching of his word with more clarity and poignancy than in any other moment. And we need serious grace to recognize that because we want to look at our phones and think about the football game and worry about what's for lunch and how tired we are. God, God, help us. Help us, Holy Spirit, to have a laser focus on what we're doing in this moment and to be profoundly affected by it. Lord, the, the difference that's going to be made in the next 40 minutes is determined by our hearts, by the fertility of the soil of our souls. So help each one of us open wide and receive the rain. Receive the truth. Receive who you are as revealed in what you say that we might go out of here happy, that we might go out of here with hope, that we might go out of here with power, and that we might go out of here glorifying our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his holy name we pray. Amen. <coughs> Amen. This morning we resume our three-part conclusion to the book of Romans, which ends in a doxology, a high song of worship ascribing all glory to God for so great a salvation of sinners and all the magnanimous effects and entailments, 16 chapters worth, that accompany it. In these final three verses... The Apostle Paul summarizes the main divisions of his letter, which we're reviewing under the headers. Number one, which is gospel strengthening. That's chapters one through eight, which covers the breathtaking sweep of what Christ has done for us on the cross and how we are to derive supreme encouragement from his grace and love towards us in that redemptive act and all that it means in our relationship with him. 
And I'll finish that point today before we move on to number two, which is Gentile inclusion. This is chapters 9 to 11, which describes the mystery of how God kept his promises in Scripture to reconcile Jews as well as Gentiles from every nation to himself and to one another in one unified church. And like the first point, this is tremendously strengthening. And that leads us to the only appropriate response, which is number three, glorifying lifestyles. Chapters 12 and following are all about offering our bodies in living sacrifice, in obedience and service to one another and in witness to the world so that God's sovereign command and wisdom and mercy in Christ might be displayed for his glory for all eternity. That's Romans doxology. And that's what we turn to now. And I've actually, (coughs) excuse me, I've color-coded the clauses that correspond with each point because it's actually one long run-on sentence in the Greek and the numeration of verses was not in the original and it's not helpfully placed here. So I hope the, the orange, blue, and green highlights serve you in an attempt to organize and understand the divisions of this profound statement. Again, this is Romans chapter 16, verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God. Be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, let's start by finishing up point one from last week, gospel strengthening. Now to him, to God, and you have to skip down to verse 25 for the completion of Paul's thought. Now to him be glory. But before that profound conclusion, the apostle inserts why and how such honor is due him. It's because he is able, now to him be the glory, because he is able to strengthen you according to the gospel. And God is not only able to strengthen you through the death of his son, the cross is the means by which he strengthens us and thus brings praise to his glory. Listen, as lofty as this text is, it's just as practical. It it invites the question from the outset, do I feel weak, weary, 
am, am I troubled, downcast, fearful in, in any way? Is, is life overwhelming me, even crippling me? If so, where so, then you need strength. You need hope. You need grace. And there is only one place to get the power you need to overcome the trials and pain and hardship that are ever attempting to crush us in this life. And more precisely, there's only one person who is able to strengthen you. It is God himself. And there is only one way he does it, in the preaching of Jesus Christ. The good news that though we were condemned in our sins, the dark transgression of our perversions and the violence of our souls, Romans chapter 1, as well as the highbrow religious judgmentalism chapter 2 shows us to be guilty of, the gospel is that though we were doomed in our unrighteousness and utter inability to earn the holiness necessary to be acceptable to God, chapter three, Jesus himself bore our iniquity on a tree. He suffered divine wrath on our behalf and bled and died the death we deserved, so that by his substitutionary sacrifice, we might be justified, declared not guilty, given the very righteousness of Christ himself, so that we could be received into God's family, fully, freely, forgiven, forever. Could anything be more strengthening than that? You will not pay for all the things you've done wrong. All the biblical laws you violated. The, the hell you and I should be fueling for eternity was satisfied once and for all in the punishment of Christ. He was burned in our stead. And not only did he endure our agony, he gave us his own glory, his perfect standing before God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. And that unthinkable exchange is realized on our end simply by us believing it. That's what we looked at in Romans 4. All we do, which is really all we don't do, is to have faith in what Jesus has done. Church, th this is uber edifying. Grace is so absolutely free. All we have to do is receive it. 
to turn away from any self-reliance, trying to earn favor by our works, and simply trust what he has finished. In chapter 5, Paul then expounds on how that faith binds us to Jesus, makes us one with him. And that doctrine, union with Christ, isn't just applicable to our salvation, but to our sanctification. Our being joined to Jesus in his crucifixion is why sin no longer has mastery over us. Remember this from chapter 6? Our old self was crucified with him in order that, this is the reason, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And then again in verse 14 he says, sin will have no dominion over you. This is as far as we got last week and where we must now resume because it's in our struggle against sin that we so desperately need him who is able to strengthen us, don't we? And, and did you hear the promise that, that, that's so edifying? H- here it is. We don't grow in holiness from trying really, really hard. No, we grow in holiness by cultivating our union, our connection with Christ. Our iniquity and the authority it had over us was killed on Calvary. It was buried with Jesus in a tomb outside of Jerusalem so that sin cannot force us to do its bidding. We we no longer have to obey that part of us that wants to make everything about us. Now look at the rest of the equation. This is verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you once were slaves of sin, you've now become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, have now become slaves to righteousness. We have been resurrected in and with Christ and thus now live to him, obeying from hearts made new. He, he rules us as our Lord, and we are slaves. We belong to righteousness. Do you understand? As a Christian, this is awesome. You can't help but make progress in holiness. You can't help it. Because you're now in an alliance with, in a union with the one who is truth and purity and all that is good and self-controlled and kind and selfless. But, But we tend not to believe that. I don't. We don't. We don't claim that victory. We don't live in the triumph of dead to sin and alive to righteousness. Broken chains with iniquity. And I'm bound now 
to His purity. And that's why chapter 7 vividly depicts this war that still wages between our former nature, the flesh, and who we are in liberation and obligation to righteousness. And the Apostle Paul bemoans how conflicted we are in that battle in verse 19. Look what he says there. For I do not do the good I want, even though I'm a slave to righteousness. I don't do it. But the evil I do not want, what I'm freed from, is what I keep on doing. Then verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And here's the answer. It's actually in chapter 8, right after. Listen to how the gospel strengthens us when we're divided, when we're compromising, when we're foolish and sinful. There, this is who's going to deliver you. This is what's going to deliver you from this body of death. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, in union with Christ Jesus. The solution is not more effort. Rather, it is to press into who we actually are in Christ Jesus. Because in him, we're free. We're forgiven. There are no consequences of sin for us. And that deliverance was so definitive that our flesh no longer controls us. And to ensure the latter that we make progress in sanctification, it just gets too good. God has given us his Holy Spirit to dwell in us and empower us, which is what chapter 8 centers on. <laughs> Listen, how could this deal get any sweeter? And there's just so much here in chapter 8. But I want to make just one connection for you because... This all should have been covered last week. Okay, this is verse 15. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children and of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Listen, I, I am really tempted to preach an entire sermon on that, but I already did it. So here's, here's the spirit giving me self-control. <laughs> this is the summary. This is powerful, friends. The primary way the Spirit of God changes us, listen, is to whisper, you belong to me. You are my beloved child, even when you sin. Which is also, because you are his child, why you must cease from sin. We are to set our minds, Romans 8 says earlier, on the fact that God is 
our Abba Father. Because the more we do, the more we marvel at gospel mercy, the more we behold the Father's love for us, mediated through the Son and applied by the Spirit, the more we will be conformed to God. And that is why these gospel-strengthening chapters end with the unshakable assurance that not even the severest trial can detach us from the love, from the affections, from the hold of the very Holy Trinity itself. How can I not read this? Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? Aren't you speechless too? What do we say? What do we say to Romans chapter 1 through 8? Here's what we say. If God is for us, All is well. Who, what could possibly be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge? Go ahead and try. You bring in charges against yourself, even you are disqualified. Who shall bring a charge? Against God's elect. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake... We are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's union of Christ language again. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor debt, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. (sighs) That is scandalously good news. And it is that entire first half of Romans... Paul is referring to when he simply says in chapter 16, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to the gospel. That's the gospel. Humbly acknowledging the depravity of our sin. The gospel is Jesus justifying, propitiating sacrifice on the cross which we Received by faith. The gospel is our oneness with him in salvation and sanctification by which the Holy Spirit changes us and assures us of his inseparable love. That gospel is what strengthens you and me. And so we must rehearse that gospel again and again. We must speak that gospel out loud to ourselves. 
We must sing that gospel at the kitchen sink and on our long commutes. We must pray the truth of that gospel. We must remind ourselves of and cling to that gospel when we stumble, and we must trust that gospel and treasure that gospel above all things. That's gospel strengthening. Point one. Next, we move on to Gentile inclusion, which is point two. Look back with me (coughs) at verse 25, if you would. (coughs) Excuse me. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. Now it's probably not readily evident where I might be getting Gentile inclusion from the end of verse 25 and into verse 26 here. But, well, hopefully you, you, you see it in the reference to all nations. But it's actually embedded in the reference to the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings. That's the subject that Romans 9 to 11 is taken up with. Now, Paul doesn't use the word mystery there until the end of his argument in 11.25, where it encapsulates all that he's been teaching about how Jews and Gentiles fit into God's promises and plans. He writes this. This is Romans 11.25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of the mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. And as if that wasn't confounding enough, skip down to verse 28 where the apostle writes, as regards the gospel, they, the Jews, are Enemies, wait a minute, I thought they were all just going to be saved. They're, they're enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And all God's people said, what? <laughs> what? This is mind-blowing mystery. It's explaining how Yahweh will keep his covenant with his people despite their rejection of the Messiah he sent to them. According to the text, the Lord has, it, listen, he, he's ordained a temporary hardening of the Jews in order to bring the nations into the fold. But he will use the Gentile inclusion to provoke Israel to jealousy, which we learned back in chapter 11, verse 11, so that the Jews will finally return to God, validating his original calling of them and thus keeping his word. That is the revelation 
of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known. Paul quotes the Old Testament to support his gospel more in Romans than any other New Testament book, 58 times to be exact. And almost half of those references are regarding this mystery of Gentile inclusion in chapter 9 through 11, which has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings. Listen, listen to some of the prophetic writings from Romans chapter 11. This is Deuteronomy 29.4, cited in chapter 11, verse 8. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. Earlier, Paul quoted Moses, Moses from Deuteronomy 32. This is chapter 10, verse 19 in Romans. I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation, Gentiles. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And then right in between verses 26 and 28, about the partial hardening and Gentile inclusion and all Israel being saved because God's calling is irrevocable. Right in the middle of that is this promise from Isaiah 59. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Do you see how what God would do with Israel and how every people group would be incorporated into that is the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to the nations. Oh, th there were clues, signs and indicators in scripture that Abraham would be the father of many nations and that the Jews would one day in the future be restored to Yahweh despite the tragic close of the Old Testament. But it wasn't clear how these things could be. And certainly how these divine purposes would be conjoined that was shrouded in mystery. No one knew they would come together in Christ. His advent is what revealed the secret of how God would accomplish all that he promised to have a people from every ethnicity and the apostles' authoritative prophesying here is what unveiled how God's election of the Jews would come to pass in their mass ingathering right before the end. And that is strengthening to us because it means that God's will for non-Jews, for us to be the object of his gospel mercy, was predicted and recorded over three and a half millennia ago. I mean, do you see how securing it is that God's promise to graft you and me foreign wild branches into a cultivated Jewish olive tree that was specifically being tended and grown by Yahweh in Israel was written into God's word and a part of his plans from the beginning. He has now gone public with that gospel, which means you're not an afterthought. Or plan B, you have been included. You have been engraved in the covenant of redemption. 
all along. Remember these three qualifiers, according to my gospel, according to the preaching of Jesus Christ, and according to the mystery concealed, now revealed, of Gentile inclusion and Jewish reinstatement. Those are all just facets of the good news that is fortifying to us. And this final one, the mystery, if you haven't discerned it yet, emphasizes the doctrine of sovereign election. And I've saved that until now as we've worked our way back from the mystery of chapter 11 and its interplay between Israel and the nations that will conclude with the saving of every tribe and tongue and an end-time revival of Jews. But that happy ending is predicated not just on the foundation of the covenant oath God swore to have a diverse people for himself that cannot fail, as comforting as that is. There's an even deeper bedrock that the gospel rests on, that the apostle begins with in chapter 9, and it is his unconditional election of us. This is as, this is as weighty as it gets in Romans. And it takes us into the realms of mystery that Paul concludes are unsearchable. Here's how chapter 9 begins with this critical question. We're starting in verse 6. Has the word of God failed? For not all who are descendants from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This is Paul reiterating what he said all the way back in chapter 2, that being God's people now has to do with inward transformation. Circumcision of the heart, not external conformity to the law. And he cites Isaac here as the supernatural child of promise born to Abraham in his old age as representative of salvation by faith. And that's opposed to Ishmael, who came about by efforts of the flesh, which stands for works of the law. But then he breaks it down even further with Isaac's twin sons, Jacob and Esau. And his words here are shocking. This is verse 11. Though they were not yet born, this is Jacob and Esau, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She, Rebecca, was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This verse is of immeasurable consolation to God's people, even as it creates consternation from what appears to be unfairness. But the only reason we view it that way is because we don't take Romans chapter 1 through 3's condemnation of sin seriously. The scandalous part of this verse is not Esau I hated, but actually Jacob I loved. 
we should be asking how the latter could be possible. Love is a far bigger problem if we recognize God's holiness. Hatred is not harsh, it's just. It's right, it's, it's a perfect eye for eye. Yahweh hates those who hate him, rejects those who reject him. But love, grace, and mercy towards those enemies? What could warrant that? Listen, Jacob was a scoundrel. He was just as defiant and defiled as his brother Esau. He, he was a liar and a thief. His name alone means deceiver. And yet the holy God set his affections on him. Loved him, it says. Which could only mean it must not be conditioned upon anything to do with him. It says those very things. Though they had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that, and here's the mystery, in order that God's purpose of election might continue or might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Listen, deep breath. God's purpose for saving sinners by election apart from anything we do is so that his freedom to sovereignly choose, that his autonomous will and call alone would remain, would stand, would endure uninfluenced, unaffected by anything other than his own good pleasure. He, he does it this way so that his own godness would be upheld. And as we'll see next week, so that no one may boast and that all glory would accrue to him. Do you understand? The, the, the moment you make human choice the deciding factor in salvation, God is no longer God. He, he becomes reactionary only able to respond to our decisions. It puts him in the passive position, which he doesn't like. He doesn't wait or, or hope or intend something. No, he initiates, he acts, he accomplishes what he desires. Those virtues are inherent to his very nature as creator and sustainer of all. You have to get this. If what we do or choose is what decides our redemption, then it means we are ultimate. We determine if we are loved or hated. We're making the call, but God does not share control or credit. No, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. That is based on him who not on us who work, but on him who calls. Because of him who calls. Oh, church, he is the cause of our inclusion. His election, his calling. He calls. 
not us. And, and Paul knows this is hard. So he continues, because listen, there is enormous benefit to us, peace unspeakable, if we will press into this mystery and allow, allow it to undo us and surrender to it. Here's the conclusion, verse 14, I better get water. Oh, because I'm going to need it. Anybody have oxygen? Oh, listen to this. Verse 14. We're going even deeper. What shall we say then? Again, he's flabbergasted. Are you? You should be. This is, this is stunning. This is, this is unfathomable. What shall we say then to this sovereign electing God? Is there injustice on his part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, adding to the mystery is the fact that not only does God harden Pharaoh's heart, but Pharaoh hardens his own heart, right? Humans are responsible for how they respond to God. And they will be held accountable for their own real choices. And yet, God somehow remains sovereign, not us. And that is to ensure that his name will receive the glory in both grace and judgment. Verse 19 continues, and just allow yourself to get smaller and God to get larger when it comes to destiny. A destiny you may have thought you were in control of. Here's what he says. Verse 19. You will say then to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will, his sovereign will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Listen, when you and I are on the precipice, straining to comprehend the depth of the chasm of God's mysterious ways and purposes, it's analogous to us being a clump of inanimate mud compared to God as the master craftsman. Mud has no brains. We're just clay. And he is the artist. The potter molding and fashioning our lives into his perfect plans 
which the apostle presses to its conclusion in verse 22. What if? What will you do if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patient vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which we he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Listen, as surreal as the doctrine of God's sovereign election is, the argument from Scripture is not complex. God makes vessels that will glorify him by experiencing the justice of his righteous wrath to highlight the stupendous grace to pots he made for his glory. Now this text isn't accentuating how human volition and culpability are involved. Other scriptures do that. But here we are just summoned to stand in awe that he chooses not to save some, but others, but us. I've used this illustration before, and I've not been able to come up with any better. Do you, kn do you know what a photo mosaic is? It's individual photos, tiny ones, arranged in a way that combine to form a larger, more impressive, complete image. So it might be like a thousand little scenes from various Disney movies put together like a puzzle so that certain colors are next to one another in a way that when you step back from the picture, you see that it looks like the Magic Kingdom. All the individual scenes have their own inherent meaning and aesthetics, but together they form something far greater. Do you know, have you seen these? Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know where I'm going? With humanity, us, ours is not a photo mosaic, but a video mosaic. The story of every person's life is not static, but moving. And when it is played, it has its own characters and plots and resolutions. And that's true even if it ends in tragedy. Just like the blacker pictures in the photo mosaic serve as shadows and to highlight or outline and brighten other features of the artwork, so too calamity and destruction and darkness will combine with blessing and splendor and light, the saved and the unsaved, to paint the most beautiful, complex canvas film ever that will leave all in stunned silence at the brilliance of the artisan who designed and directed the masterpiece. And that mystery strengthens us by causing us to cover our mouths, humbling us, overwhelming us with the wonder of the place we have in this gospel production as vessels of mercy. That's why the apostle 
ends with his first doxology in chapter 11. Here it is. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable. Who is going to question his judgments? How inscrutable are his ways? Who has known the mind of the Lord? I mean, we're blowing brain cells, just scratching the surface. Who, who can figure this stuff out? Who, who has been God's counselor? Hey, God, God I got an idea how to, how to do things. Who, who has given a gift to God that he should have to repay? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Here's my, here's my translation in conclusion. Nobody thinks up this stuff. N no one could come up with this kind of a plan. And absolutely, who could pull this off? Preserving human responsibility to choose while maintaining his own sovereign supremacy to elect and save? Uh, only our God can keep promises that his people break that require just punishment, but he uses that very failure to redeem the nations, and in turn he uses to provoke the Jews to jealousy, <coughs> that God might circle back to reclaim them. What a God! That is why chapter 16 concludes with, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to the revelation. Do you feel strengthened by this revelation? According to this revelation, the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed to us. We know it. We just reviewed it. The mystery that was written in the prophetic word and has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith, which we'll get to next week, to the only wise God. Be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. He is the only wise God. Isn't he? He controls all things. Does it? He knows what he's doing. He can be fully trusted, and that is infinitely strengthening. The sovereign God works all things together for good to those who love him, who have been called, who have been elected according to his Purposes according to the gospel mystery. This is good news. This is what builds us up. He chose you. He loved you with Jacob when he should have hated you with Esau. This is so strengthening. God designed you, believer, to be a vessel that displays the utter lavishness of his unmerited grace. So let us declare with the final words of Romans, the final words over 
all of history and our lives personally to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Forgive us for being wise in our own eyes, Sovereign Lord. Forgive us for challenging the way you have orchestrated everything we've gone through. We've, we have counseled you and we have questioned you. We, we actually still do. We think we know a better way for you to accomplish your purposes, but in this moment, Lord, when we step back and get a glimpse of the larger picture of what you're doing in including Gentiles in your original covenants to save and make a people your own, we were silenced. We stand in wonder and we take our rightful place in bowed surrender to your will. And we thank you, Lord, for the comfort that is. What strength we derive from the fact that you know exactly what you are doing. And not only that, you have predetermined it. And our election is proof. And I pray we would rest. I pray we would be the most secure people. We would stop being unsettled by every little problem. Lord, th th this is the antidote to complaining. To any grumbling. To fears. How, how can we entertain doubts? when the only wise God <coughs> is our Lord Jesus Christ. So Father, fill our vision with that doxology. Fill our lungs with that praise and let it manifest in strengthened brothers and sisters that bring you glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You are officially dismissed to pick up your children, and if everyone could quickly make your way outside to the baptismal, we will conclude the service with one, two more sacraments, baptism uh, and then Holy Communion, and we'll end with Amazing Grace. We'll see you out there.